B'Shem Hashem Naseh V'Natsliach, Shiur Torah. Good to be in Aventura at the Breslov Center once again, Baruch Hashem, in our weekly Shiur. We have a, uh, the uh, Musar Pirkei Avot series continues to help me, to help other people around the world, Baruch Hashem, work on ourselves. That's really the key. You know, one of the most important things that a person needs to know, first thing that he thinks about after he says, Modeani to Hashem, thanking Hashem that Hashem brought him back the, uh, his neshama, back to his body. The first thing that he needs to think about is, what do I have to do to fix myself? Something about myself today. Something. If he thinks that he doesn't have anything to fix, that means he hasn't learned enough. So already he knows what the solution is, he has to learn more. If he already has a list of five different things that he needs to fix. He has to pick one. Because you can't address everything all at once. But at the same token, you can't ignore reality either. The only way you get better in the world is by working on yourself. And that's whether you're trying to work on yourself for business purposes, for ethical purposes, for marriage purposes, for education, anything. Anything in life, you have to work on yourself. So when people generally see, for example, the title of this series, Musar, Musar Pirkei Avot, and if they know what the, what the meaning of Musar is, uh, which is ethics in essence, but it's a little stronger word than ethics. Ethics sounds like nice and sweet, you know, it sounds more like a uh, being nice, whereas Musar is really more of getting to the bottom of the problem and fixing it. So when someone sees it, immediately they're like, oh, why is this... Is this negative? Why is it so negative? It's not negative. It's a reality check. And every single person has to have some type of reality check with where they stand. Now, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, Hashem has helped me. I'm hoping that it's helping many of you. Uh, but the key is, is that every single person has, you know, that comes to Shul gets a little bit of a special message, personalized message that a person online may not be able to get. And the reason why is because one of the things that Hashem does uh, when it comes to Kiruv is that He gives the, uh, the people, He gives the people that come to the Shurim extra schal. He gives them extra reward. Part of the reward is because they toiled to the point of getting to the Shur, whereas other people didn't come to the Shur. In the old days, it's not like today where you got into a car, 25 minutes later you're at the Shur, an hour later you're at the Shur. That could be, you know, a few hours or even a few days uh, walk in some cases. Today, half hour, you're at a shiur. And if you don't feel like going to a shiur, you press a button, you go online, you get a shiur. So in today's world, there's not really that much schal for getting to the shiur as it used to be. Because it used to be you had to walk two, three, four days to get to the shiur Torah. And the shiur Torah itself used to be several days. It was a seminar each time. Now, so getting to the shiur was a big journey. Staying awake throughout the whole shiur was a big journey. It was a big thing. It was a big deal. Today, people constantly tell me, oh yeah, I watched that really long shiur. I'm like, oh, which, I don't know, all of them are long. Which one is shiur? It's like, oh yeah, that two and a half hour shiur. I'm like, oh wow, okay, good. Like, it's the first thing that a lot of people mention to me is how long the shiurim is, and they feel like it's a sense of accomplishment that they've watched the shiur. In reality, in today's world, it is a sense of accomplishment because most people's attention span is very short and usually they can listen to shiur for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour is usually like an average. 
But in many cases, most people can't listen to a shiur for two, three hours uh, unless they have some type of deeper connection with the speaker. Unless they really get stimulated and really get uh, connected to the speaker, it's very, very hard for someone to sit there for two hours and listen to any speaker. Um, so it is a, definitely a, uh, an accomplishment to listen to a shiur. But the reality of it is that, at least from my perspective, it takes me almost two hours to get to the real key part of the shiur. Other people, maybe they're bigger tamidim chachamim, I'm not a tamidim chacham exactly, so... You know, they, maybe they get to their point in five minutes. I can't get to five minutes. There's a lot of points. There's so much material that honestly, if you would allow me, I'd go for five hours. But I know that after two, three hours, people start dozing off. It's late at night. They want to go home. So we cut it off. If I do it at five, I think it's just going to be you and me. So, but the key is that in the old days, you got schal for going to the shul. Maran Bachot says, why is the schal, why is the reward for going to the shiur? Shouldn't you get the reward for, go, for being at the shiur, for learning Torah? Instead, if the speaker is a high-level speaker, in those days it was Tanaim, people that were able to revive the dead. It's a high-level speaker, most of the crowd will either not understand or not remember anything that the speaker says. Now in today's world, it's still the same. Not that anyone in the world today is a Tana, or even close to a Tana, but in reality, most of the Jewish world is secular. So, unless you've been attending Shurei Torah for a long period of time, when you're first going to the Shurim, there's a lot of things that you're not going to understand. Unless you're already in the Shfung, you're already in it. You're not going to understand when somebody says, a, uh, listen, Mechalet Shabbat, Deserves a death penalty according to the Torah. You're going to take it personally. Like, hey, hey, relax. Why are you being so harsh? Like I made the rules. No, that's what it says in the Torah. As a matter of fact, in this week's parasha, Parashat Kitisa, it's one of the first parashat that talks about the punishment for Michal Shabbat. And it's very, very harsh. It's very, very harsh. It talks about how someone, it's a Michal Shabbat, loses his status as a Jew, loses his... Uh, years off of his life in this world where in those days they would actually kill him with the worst type of uh, death penalty called stoning which just describing the, uh, the death penalty that they would give him is mamash, that by itself should make people do tshuva if they believe what actually happened because it's a really really harsh punishment much worse than a murderer and then on top of that as if that wasn't enough they say he has no share of the world to come if he dies a mechalel shabbat b'farestia there's no share of the world to come. So it's three levels of punishment that is completely unbearable. So some way it's the first time they went to Shiur Torah and they hear something like this. It sounds like, hey, these people are extremists. What is this, Nazi Germany? What is this, Iran? What is this, a, uh, these people are uh, crazy fanatics? But this is what it says in the Torah. Now, of course, in today's world, not many people talk like this. Not many people can tell you the truth, how it's written, because... It takes a uh, certain type of person to do it on one end, uh, but on another end, it's also a, uh, you know, it's not, not everybody necessarily has the uh, ability to do it for many reasons. But nonetheless, many people that even if they do understand what's going on in the shiur, they listen to it, they already connected to the speaker, they have a different problem. They go to the shiur, they stay there two hours. 
five minutes after the shiur, they get home. Half hour after the shiur, they get home. They see their wife. Wife asks news. What was the shiur about? Yeah, it was, you know, about Musar. Yeah, well, what did he say? What did he say? I don't know what he said. He just said things. What do you mean? You were there for two hours. You can't tell me five-minute pitch? You can't give me a five-minute pitch on what he said? Forgot. I don't know. I forgot. I forgot. They forget a lot of things. We're going to learn part of the reason of why we forget. Today we're going to learn part of the reason of why we forget. We're also going to learn part of the reason of why we don't understand. But the point I'm trying to make now is in regards to the people that come to the Shulim, one of the advantages they have over people that are watching it on YouTube is that when you come to the Shulim, you're part of the Zikwer Rabin, you're part of the Kiruv itself. And as a gift, Hashem gives you or gives the speaker to talk about things that are specifically meant for you to hear. Specifically for you. Not that the speaker knows or has a prearranged uh, you know, relationship with you. He says, oh, listen, you know, do me a favor. I have some Shlom Bayit issues. Talk about Shlom Bayit. Yeah, we're talking about Parashat Kitisa. It has nothing to do with Shlom Bayit. We're talking about a uh, Parashat Bechukotai. It has nothing to do with your children right now. But he puts words into the speaker's mouth to specifically address things that are relating to you. And this is why sometimes you also see that there are certain... Uh, Lectures that you connect to more than others. Sometimes the lectures that you connect to the most are the ones you attend, whereas you watch it online, doesn't doesn't really uh, connect you as much. And again, it has to do with the siyat dishmaim. Nonetheless, regardless of uh, whether somebody attends the shiur in person or watches online, everyone obviously has a schut. The people that are watching it online live now. I think it's the uh, second best thing you could possibly do is watch the shiurim live. You're watching it on Facebook, Baruch Hashem. Hashem provided technology where we use it for good and you have thousands, Baruch Hashem, thousands and thousands of tzaddikim and tzaddikot online watching it right now as we are. They're just right here, right here with us. And also if you notice, Satan works very hard. So every time we have the shiur online, Baruch Hashem, for the last month or so we've been doing this online, there's always a shock that shows up to the thread and tries to bother everyone with their nonsense. Talks to them about Christianity, talks to them about all types of stupidity. It has nothing to do with the shoe. But it takes the distraction away, takes the uh, attention away from people that are, some of the people, not everyone, some of the people that are watching the shoe. So for everyone that's watching at home, if one of these idiots is on the thread right now that's making comments, obviously I can't see the comments, I don't have the time to pay attention to the screen. But if one of these idiots is on the thread, do yourself a favor, completely ignore him. Completely ignore him. Don't even swipe. Don't even look at the comments. Don't even look at the comments. Swipe, don't swipe. Don't even look at the comments. Don't do nothing. Why? This is also a teach you a little bit of Musari skill for life. A vikuach, a, uh, an argument. What's an argument? An argument is when two or more parties are in a conflict of some kind where they're expressing their frustration with each other. Now what if one person walks away? It's two people. Let's say, you know, we'll start with five. Five people arguing. No, this, no, this. You know, you have five Jews, 18 opinions. So you have five Jews, they're arguing, da, 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 arguing, arguing, arguing. 
One of them says, you know what, I gotta go to work now. He leaves, we got four left. The four are still arguing now, somehow from 18 opinions we went to 25. Fours. Gotta make up for the one we lost. Okay, after a little while, fourth guys and the third guy, they both gotta leave. Thank you very much for the argument. Woke me up for the morning. Nice, just like a little bit of Harif in the morning. Thank you very much. I gotta go to work now. Two guys left. They're arguing, they're arguing, they're arguing. But along this time, now at the end of this day, people are gonna ask him, so who won the argument? But what happens after one of the two leaves? And the guy that's left continues to argue. What happens? He continues to argue. What happens? Everyone, the whole argument changes and turns on its face. They listen. Me skinned the whole time. We didn't know the guy was crazy. We're arguing with him like he's a normal person, but the whole time he's crazy. He's arguing with himself. This is what a vikuach is. This is what an argument is. If you argue with you, shalom, with a spouse or with a friend or with a partner or something like that, it's an argument. But if one of the two people decides to walk away or be quiet, the argument immediately ends. Why? Because for that person to continue the argument by themselves, they know that they're crazy. Same thing with these people that are online. They make comments. You know, everybody is a keyboard warrior. Keyboard warriors. They make comments. Everyone's a strong guy. They like to make comments. No, he said this. He said that. All that things. If you acknowledge them, they're going to continue saying it. They continue writing because you're giving them energy. You're giving the satan more fuel. But if you ignore them like they don't exist... They'll make one comment, two comments, five comments, six comments. Eventually, they see nobody's uh, answering them. They leave. They go away. They go back into the hole they came from. And that's the best way to deal with these trolls. In general, not just on my own shears, but in general. All trolls online, don't even bother with them. Because honestly, when someone is looking for the truth, you can get to the truth within two to three comments. When someone is looking to just express their flawed opinion 50,000 answers would not even be the beginning and one for me one of the things that taught me this was not only the things that I saw on Wall Street when I would write different articles about uh, different companies and different issues there would be always somebody going against it saying I am wrong or I'm right or whatever it is and usually the ones that say I'm right it's all thank you very much conversation ends you agree on one or two points that's it the ones that say you're wrong it's 500 emails back and forth and still you don't get to a point it's even more so with Judaism and Torah. The guy that has a different opinion, you can give him 500 sources. 500 sources, it won't be enough. Why? Because he doesn't agree. And this is also one of the things that happened with this whole Matthew Kelly situation where somebody made a video recently saying how it's wrong to, uh, to go against this missionary because he's not really a missionary or even if he is a missionary, he's not a mean and all these different things. We talked about this last week. We're not going to talk about it again. The point being is that when someone is looking for the truth, you can find out the truth within a 10-minute clip that we made. You find out the entire story. You get from beginning to end, conclusion, the end. It's 100% fact. Not allowed to have a medicine about it. That's it. There's no, there's no two points about it. If you're looking for an excuse, you're looking for a tell, you can watch seven hours worth of shurim that we did and still disagree. Still disagree. It doesn't make a difference. So there's no point. There's no point. Someone is looking for the truth, they're going to find it very quickly. Because Hashem is going to give them siyat dishmaya to find it. So now, moving on into this say, uh, Mishnah, we are in Bet Yud Zayn. Now in Bet Yud Zayn, which is uh, chapter 2, Mishnah 17, it says, Rabbi Yosei Omer, 
אם המון חברך חביב עליך, כשלך, ועדכן עצמך ללמוד תורה שאינה ירושה לך, וכל מעשיך יהיו לשם שמיים. אז רבי אליעזר בן הורקנוס said a couple of weeks ago, and רבי יהושע said last week, these are the students of רבן יוחנן. רבן יוחנן asked each one of them to say three, each one to say three things that they feel are the most fundamental to your growth and connection with Hashem. Now, as we know, each one of these people has enough Torah to fill up the world several times over. In one of the Gemarot, there's a story about Rabbi Akiva comes to visit, comes to visit one of his rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos is very upset at him. He says, how come you didn't come visit me in so many years? I have so much Torah to teach you. He says, how much Torah do you have? How much Torah exactly do you know? He says to him, If the entire ocean was ink, the entire ocean was ink, and all of the trees were pens, and all of the land was paper, it wouldn't be enough for all of the sofrim, all of the scribes in the world, to write down just the Torah that I know. And the Torah that I know is not even a lick that a dog takes from an ocean in comparison to the Torah that my rabbis have. You know, dog comes to the ocean, takes a little lick. Did he affect the ocean? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing changed in the ocean. He says, my Torah that I know is like that little lick next to my rabbis. So, just like Hashem says, open your mouth and I'll fill it. Meaning, however much you want to learn, I can teach you. No problem. But here Rabban Yochanan asks a special request from his Talmidim, from his special Talmidim, this handful, the five all-stars. Give me three things. Don't give me everything. Three most important things. Why only three things? You ask one of them, listen, how many mitzvot we have in the Torah? I tell you, we have 613 biblical and seven rabbinical. And already 620. Those 620 break down into hundreds and hundreds of halachot. Hundreds of halachot. Just Shabbat. Shabbat has over a thousand halachot that you could go through within a few days. Just Shabbat. How many halachot? Just for, just for tefillin is a thousand halachot. Tefillin. To make tefillin. Thousand halachot. Couldn't say, listen, you know what? Let's just mention to them 20% of the mitzvot each. Break it down. You have 100% mitzvot. Each one of you take 20%. One, two, three. We finished the whole uh, 620. Says, no, no, no. Three. Why three? Because these three are the foundation that you can build on to get to the ultimate level of connection with Hashem. Whereas without them, You'll always have a piece missing. With them you can connect. Without them you'll always be disconnected. Meaning they're so foundational, they're so fundamental to your development and your connection with Hashem Yitbarach that it's virtually impossible for you to get to a true level of connection without having 
your mind on them at all times. Now obviously when someone is just starting the daily, he's just starting to get in, he's not going to be able to get attain all of these things in one day, one week, or even one year. Point being here is that from every shiur that we listen to and every shiur that we learn, you got to take a few pointers. Okay, you know what? That relates to me. I'm going to try to implement that. That doesn't relate to me as much. Okay, which one relates to you more? Something's more, something's less. You have to judge yourself. I don't have, I'm not a prophet. I don't know exactly what your level is or where everyone is. Not you and not the thousands and thousands of people that are online watching this stuff. But you know. You're your own best judge. And it's better that you judge yourself than they judge you in Shemaim. You say, listen, three things we learned. First one, one, one to ten affects me five. Second one affects me five and a half. Third one is a 9.9. So what's the answer? You got to work on a 9.9. Yeah, but Rabbi, that's the most difficult one. Exactly. That's why you came to the shiur. That's why Hashem maneuvered the world today for you to show up today. That's why Hashem maneuvered the world today for you to press play on Facebook, on Torah Anytime, on, uh, on YouTube, wherever you press to watch the shiur. That's why you, that's why we allowed you to do it because you need to work on that 9.9. You need to work on that one specific thing. The only reason why the shiur existed in your life is for that for that particular point. Which means that if you don't do it, you're wasting your time. It's like grinding water. Doesn't matter how long you grind them, it's going to stay the same. So the other thing, the other point that. Uh, Brother Fry mentioned, when we learned this Mishnah together, is that many people, when they first start doing tshuva, get very, very excited, and usually they're able to express their excitement with the exterior. Usually you have a rabbi, Hamid Chacham, has a yeshiva, 20 years, 25 years already, he's running it. It's got looks mechubah, it's got the jacket, it's got the hat, it's got a nice beard most of the time. And then you have the Baal Chuba, six months, has a longer beard. He still doesn't know all the alakot of Shabbat. He has a longer beard, he has an even bigger hat, got the jacket. Exterior, it looks the same. You look at both of them, sometimes the Baal Chuba looks more holy. But that's not what Judaism is all about. Judaism is what's inside. Judaism is what's inside you. Of course your exterior needs to match your interior. Needs to match. If your interior is rotten, you can hide it with your exterior. But if your exterior is rotten, we won't even look at your interior. Why? Because there's no way for your interior to be any good if you're half naked all day. Where do we see this from? We learn this from the Gemara, Masechet Sota, page 2. Where they say that a man gets a woman based on his ma'asim, based on his deeds. And Rashi explains it, he says, yes, a tzaddik gets a modest woman, a rasha gets a prostitute. So Chazal asks, what, do you mean? what does one thing have to do with the other? Tzaddik, tzaddika, rasha, rasha'it. Righteous with righteous, wicked with wicked. What are you saying? You know, righteous with a modest, not righteous with a prostitute. What does one thing have to do with the other? So Rashi explains, if he's a tzaddik, he's going to get a modest woman. Because if she's modest, much more likely that she is righteous. 
Not always, but much more likely to be righteous. But if he's a rasha, he deserves a prostitute. Why? Because if she is immodest, it's impossible for her to be righteous. There's not one woman on earth that ever existed in all of the generations that was immodest and righteous at the same time. Why? Because in essence, when you are immodest, especially as a woman, as a man, it's not necessarily as relevant to the same extent. It's relevant because men have to be modest also, but not to the same extent. Why? Because if a man walks around half naked, most women just think he's just, you know, I don't know, maybe he thinks he's a cow. Maybe he thinks he's Conan the Barbarian or Tarzan. They don't think much of him. They don't have any lustrous thoughts about this guy. They just think, oh, maybe he's homeless. Who knows? But when a woman walks around with a tank top, or with a mini skirt, or with clothes that are very, very tight, or she, or she wears one of these wigs that looks like she's a superstar from uh, one of these, uh, you know, uh, Oscar shows, and you don't, you can't even tell that it's not really her real hair, and she looks immodest. What happens? All of the guys, excuse my language, but every single guy that she walks by imagines having sex with her. Every single guy, holy and not holy, every single guy that got that failed the test and got to a point of looking at her for a moment or longer thinks about having sex with her. That's the sad reality. And that, my friends, is a sin deoraita. It's a biblical sin to such an extent that the Torah says, Areg ve'al ya'avo. It's better that he die and not have that thought. So when a woman pretends to be a tzaddikah, she says, oh, listen, I'm going to the shiur Torah, but I'm going with my tank top. What does the rabbi care about my tank top? What does the rabbi care about my tight top? What do they care? He's a rabbi. He should be focused on his Torah. The other people should be focused on the Torah, not on my clothes. I like it. It makes me feel good, which is all bogus, by the way. No one dresses like that because it makes them feel good. A tight clothes do not make anyone feel good. It makes you feel constricted. The fact that you have to breathe in before you close your jeans is not making anyone feel good. Not making anyone. Let's, let, let's not, at least let's pass the lie. No one wears those clothes because it makes them feel good. No one walks around with a mini skirt in the snow they have in New York right now because it makes them feel good. You're freezing. You would prefer to have ski clothes on right now. But you wear the skirt because you want attention. Maybe you didn't get attention at home. Maybe you didn't get a hug. I don't know. You didn't get attention, so you want attention from somewhere else. But if you want a relationship with Hashem, you must get over this craziness because you are literally destroying your connection with Hashem Barach. He loves you. But He's forced to not pay attention to you. You pray, he listens, but he's forced not to answer you. Why? Because when you are immodest, you are killing his children. You're also his child, but you're killing the rest of his kids because each time one of these Baalet Shuva, one of these rabbis, one of these Talmidim, one of these teenagers, one of these Goyim, anytime someone looks at you and imagines a sexual thought, you're destroying their neshama. You're destroying Hashem's kids. How do you expect Hashem to listen to anything you say? So, 
when a person understands the responsibility they have to the world around them it becomes much easier when a person is selfish there's no way that they can have a connection with Hashem so Chazal here is telling us each one of these Mishnayot the Rabban Yochanan asked to have Each one of these Mishnayot, the Rabban Yochanan asked to have, we're going to tell you three fundamental things that without them, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Maybe you're going to make it this week. Maybe you're going to make it this month. Maybe you're going to make it even five, ten years. But to get to the ultimate, to get to the... Continue? No. What happened? Is this working? I think it's working, yeah, okay. Somebody called my uh, phone. Should have a technology not to call. But anyway, the, the key here is that to get to the ultimate level of connecting to Hashem, you must work on each one of these qualities. So the first thing that Rabbi Yossi is saying, it's three things, don't take too much. Start with three fundamental things because if you take too much, you work too much on the exterior, six months later, you're not going to like the beard anymore. Six months later, it's going to be too hot to wear the uh, big coat that you decided to wear because you wanted to be a chassid for six months. Six months later, you're going to realize that paying off the $5,000 on a big hat that you don't wear is too much to take. And there's not that many buyers on eBay. If you work too much in your exterior, it's not going to hold. It's not going to hold. Eventually, you're going to break. Or sometimes people say, you know what? Just started keeping Shabbat last week. This week, he's going to start sleeping less. He's going to cut his schedule. Instead of eight hours a day, he's going to sleep three hours. Why are you going to sleep three hours? Oh, I'm going to learn to all night. Okay, good. Baruch Hashem, you're going to learn to all. But you just started learning Pashat Bereshit last week. This week already you're learning, you know, you're not sleeping, you're not going to make it. Start little by little. It's not that we don't want you to learn 24 hours a day. That was what you were created for. You were created to learn. But le'at le'at, one step at a time. Le'at le'at. So different people take on things that are bigger than them. And when they take things that are bigger than them, you're bound to fail. So obviously each person has to be their own real judge, real jury, and has to evaluate themselves. And most importantly, look at the ikal. Look at the most important. Don't look at the tafel. The tafel is the secondary stuff. In the religious world, one of the biggest problems unfortunately we have today is that there are many people, unfortunately, even one is many, but there are many people that are leaving Hasidut, leaving the Haredi world, and not just becoming like a new Baal Tshuva, with a little kippah, you know, just starting. No, no, no. They become anti-Torah. There's actually a show in Israel, Machshimov Zichod is a guy that runs all these shows, who finds all of these miskinim, all of these poor people that have left their families, and he highlights how they've become complete kofrim. Yesterday they were with the hat, 
and this and that. Some of them were rabbis. Some of them were rabbanites. Today they're shemachem, prostitutes, drug dealers, drug users. I mean, the worst types of, like, how did you go from, I don't know, Rabbi Akiva to, I don't know, Achitofen? What happened? Okay, listen, you're not going to be Gdolado, fine. Be normal. Wear a kippah, go to Minyan, pray three times a day, learn a little bit of Torah every day, eat kosher, that's it. How do you go from this to this? What happened? A lot of them leave because they break. And one of the reasons of why they break is because there's been so many added stringencies to some of these cults within Judaism that's not for everyone. Whether it's Hasidut of Chabad or Breslev or different places, there's not, this, this is not, it's not a, uh, or Satmer, or it's not necessarily going against any Hasidut, Chas Shalom. It's just that that Hasidut is not for everyone. But when you fit, when you make it for everyone, everyone is born into it, there's a family, it's in Satmer their whole life, and their son is not really the rightest fit to be with inside. He just, he just can't do it. And you're forcing him to do it. And if he doesn't do it, you're not exactly very understanding. You can become violent. You can become very abusive. You can become a lot of different things. People that don't have, you know, a, a good foundation themselves, unfortunately, sometimes. They make other people worse instead of making them better. So what happens, that person eventually breaks. That woman or that man, Hashem Echem, ends up breaking. They say, you know what? If this is Judaism, I don't want it. And they leave the derech. They leave everything. And they don't just leave and just say, okay, you know what? I'll just continue keeping kosher. They say, you know what? The whole thing. If I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to keep anything. And what ends up happening is that they blame all of the problems of the additives that were added to the chasidut on God. When it has nothing to do with Him. These are not the rules of God. Hashem didn't make these rules. These are things that the Hasidut added, added customs. That's it. Not obligations. You should act like your community if you're going to be in that community. But if you don't, it doesn't make you necessarily the biggest sinner in the world. You're not going, not losing your Olam uh, or anything. The point being is that people have become confused at what Judaism is and what it's not to such an extent that anytime something doesn't work out they leave God they blame God for everything they blame it has nothing to do with him it has nothing to do with his Torah there's no Allah that says listen you have to go into the middle of the woods every day and do it with a dude for three hours no Allah like that there's no Allah that says you have to wear a hat no Allah like that it says you have to cover your head it's a rabbinical mitzvah doesn't say you have to wear a big hat, small hat, black hat, blue hat. Doesn't say anything like that. There's no halacha that says you have to wear a jacket. No halacha. As a matter of fact, even though anyone that doesn't that's, that believes in Hashem and is already in the process of doing tshuva, already in the process of, of fulfilling the mitzvot, anyone that doesn't wear a tzitzit is, is unfortunately a fool because he's missing out on the best, easiest mitzvah in the world. But in reality, you're not obligated to wear, wear a tzitzit unless you're wearing clothing with four corners. That's it. 
This is not part of Chasidu, this is part of the Torah, but the point being here is that we have forgotten what is the Ikar and what is the Tafel. And today, in the name of Rabbi Yashiv, Zechir Tzadik V'Kadosh Livacha, when they asked them, what should we teach people today? This age. And this is, he died uh, less than 10 years ago. He says, teach them Ikar Adin. He didn't just say one section of Judaism or another section. Ikar Adin, the basic, most important part of Judaism, that's what you teach. Nothing else. Why? Because we're so far from Emet, we're so far from the truth, that adding things to Judaism now, making it for people that are not a right fit, he can't do it. If he's already in it and he wants to take it on himself, and he has a rabbi that knows him, and knows that he can handle it, and knows that she can handle it, but to say to the guy that just started uh, tshuva last week, last month, or even six months ago, that him shaving is not uh, is not a good thing. Listen, he doesn't have to have a beard. He doesn't have to have a hat if he wants it. As a matter of fact, it's better that he doesn't grow a beard right away. You have to also be ready to wear it. It's not just uh, everyone can wear it. So nonetheless. Point being here is that the BOC, just like the two other Talmidim of Rabban Yochanan, starting out by telling us, first and foremost, understand where you stand. Don't take too much on yourself, just focus on the most fundamental, most important parts. Next, let your fellow's belongings, your fellow's money, be as dear to you as your own. Just like your money is important to you, let your friend's money be also important to you. We'll explain what that means in a second. Apply yourself to study the Torah, for it is not your inheritance. Unlike money that can transfer from generation to generation, if you are from the Rothschild lineage, you're probably rich. They had so the original Rothschild, which by the way was a big Talmud Chacham and a Tzadik. The original Rothschild had so much money, got to such wealth, that if he was alive today, he would be richer than anybody else on the Forbes 500 list by at least a factor of 10 or 20. If not more. Unfortunately, many of his descendants are not exactly what you call from. But they still have money. Showing this exact point here that the inheritance as far as money, that could transfer from generation to generation. But being a tzaddik, being a talmit chacham, it doesn't transfer. That you have to earn. And let all your deeds be for the sake of heaven. So as we know from every single week, the basic already means a lot but when you go deeper into the details we see that there's a world of difference so first and foremost let your fellows belongings let your fellows money be as dear to you as your own money is to you. A lot of people 
are very careful about their own money. You tell them, listen, why don't you give them stakah? No, listen, I gotta save. I gotta save for the house. I gotta save for the car. I gotta save for the kids. I gotta save for this and I gotta save for that. They're very careful before they do anything. Unfortunately, being stingy is a bad midah that many people have today, especially when it comes to giving tzedakah that's good quality tzedakah. To give money to Purim parties and Hanukkah parties, it's never difficult. I've never heard of a Purim party or Hanukkah party that went bankrupt. Every single Purim party or Hanukkah party or any party in general that needed money got money. You have uh, these chesed fund and GoFundMe and all these websites that you know try to help good causes. Many of them are Jewish causes, raise money. Anytime in my experience that I've seen someone try to raise money for a wedding, for a party of any kind, they get to their target and sometimes very, very quickly. Doesn't matter what the number is. 5,000, 10,000, 50,000. I don't know why somebody that doesn't have any money wants to raise 50,000 for a wedding, but they do. People love to give to parties. They feel good about it. They feel good about it. We tell somebody, listen. I'm going to save a uh, soul. Okay. I'll send $3. They send you $3. They send you $6. They send you $12, $18. They send, but different level of tzedakah. First and foremost, people don't have the understanding of the difference of what's important and what's not. Second, it's easier to see a party come to fruition. You go to the party, you start coming to fruition. Guy saved the soul, the guy became a tzaddik. You don't see him, you're not friends with him. But the more important one is the one that we talked about last week, is that not everyone has the schut to be part of helping somebody do tshuva. But nonetheless, when someone is careful about their money regardless, it's a very, very important thing to do. You shouldn't just be wasteful with your money. It's a bad thing to do. You want to be poor? Be wasteful with your money. One time when I was in the business world, I wrote an article. I used to deal with some athletes as clients. And I wrote an article where statistically over 80% of NFL football players declare bankruptcy within, I think, three to four years of their retirement. Now, the average NFL player... We're not talking about the guys that just make it for six months and then, you know, get dropped. We're talking about, like, successful ones. We're talking about people that have made 50, 100, 200 million dollars. Crazy amount of money. 10 million dollars even. Like, insane amount of money. You have a guy named Terrell Owens. Made 100 million dollars in his career. He's broke. Maybe start making money back now. I don't really know. I haven't followed it. But the point is, I know at some point, a few years ago, he declared bankruptcy. How do you lose 100 million dollars? It's very easy, actually. As crazy as that sounds, it's very, very easy to lose $100 million. All you got to do is find a bunch of really bad friends. Which, when you have money, come to you naturally. You don't even have to find them. They make the job easy for you. You don't have to reach the blute. They come to you by themselves. And everyone somehow needs something. All of a sudden, everybody became an entrepreneur. Yesterday he was homeless. Today he's an entrepreneur. He has an idea his whole life. He wants to start. And you're the investor. You're the lucky guy. You invest in this idea, you invest in that idea. All of these entrepreneurs, and you, you have the money, you feel strong. But yeah, you feel like you're a little mini Bill Gates. You're a little Warren Buffett. You're investing in businesses. Lo and behold, money's gone. That's one way. Another way is buying fancy things. 
that are beyond what your needs are. Instead of buying one house, you buy five houses. I had one player bought five Range Rovers and on the day he signed the contract. Five. Same car. Each one I think was like $75,000. You bought five of them, just in case. Just in case one got lost. Five Range Rovers. For what? Who knows? Maybe he wanted his friends to all drive in the same. Why is five friends? Why? Do you have that many friends? Five Range Rovers. So the average NFL player loses all of his money within a few years of retirement. And the reason why is because as soon as they retire, the money stops coming in. The retirement package that they get after they leave is nothing in comparison to what they were getting when they were playing. And they end up losing every single penny. They still have the same high level of spending. They still spend 100, 200, 300,000 a month. They're not making anywhere near it. So they eat all of the money that they have left because they think that, you know, I made $5 million a year for the last five years. They think that they're always going to make $5 million a year. Not realizing that after you retire, you're forgotten. No one cares about that you ran 1,000 yards last year. No one cares that you are in a Wheaties box. No one cares that they, you know, that you are on sneakers. No one's even wearing them anymore. You're old news. And what happens? You have this 25-year-old retired person. He's 25, but he's retired. And he has no idea what to do with his life. And the same goes with other sports. A little more and a little less than other sports. Some sports it's less. Some sports it's the same. But nonetheless, the career of athletes is mamash a tragedy. So they tried having this organization called NFLPA, the NFL Players Association, to help, and one of the goals of this association is to help these players manage their finances. Unfortunately, it's not helping anyone. For the most part, the same statistic holds. For the most part, it's still a disaster. For the most part, even some of the advisors that are in this uh, registration Help these people lose their money. So, nonetheless, one of the ma- biggest reasons of why this happens to these players is first and foremost, they have a work mentality of how their future looks like. Someone that's 25 years old thinks that is making $5 million a year or is making a lot of money is already assuming that the rest of his life is going to be the same. I can tell you that from a, as a financial expert. I thought about it myself. When I was making a lot of money, I thought, hey, listen, if I'm already 26 and I just made $5 million, by the time I'm 30, I'll probably be making $10 million without even working. Logically, that's what made sense. I didn't think that God's going to take control of the whole thing and just throw me out. Wash me up a little bit, clean me up. I didn't think about that. That wasn't part of the equation. The equation was logical, rational. If I'm already 26... And I just cashed in $5 million. That means that based on this pattern, by the time I'm 30, I should be making $10 million a year, if not more. This is the same type of mentality, more or less, of every young guy that makes a lot of money. So first and foremost, they, when, you are, when a lot of money comes in very quickly, a lot of money leaves very quickly, and it gets to a point where you don't have any respect whatsoever for money, it looks like chips throw them on a table, you play with them, you buy things you don't need, you pay for people that you don't know, you do a lot of stupid things with money. So first, you've already failed at the first part of this Mishnah by saying 
to respect your money, you're not even respecting your own money. But aside from that, which is even worse, you're enabling your friends, your fellow, you're enabling him to disrespect your money. He already doesn't respect your money to begin with. He just cares about himself. He's selfish. Like everybody else, he's selfish. But by you throwing your money around, you're actually enabling him. You're making him feel good about it. So when he went out, last week with him and his wife, he had one drink, one meal, normal person. You came out, and he knew that you were paying, all of a sudden he wants the bottle. All of a sudden he doesn't do anything but Johnny Walker Blue. $35, $45 a shot. All of a sudden he's a connoisseur. He's a connoisseur of special wine. He's a connoisseur of, a, uh, of, of scotch. He has not. Oh, come on, Johnny Walker Black. It's for regular people. Buddy, you didn't even drink beer last week. What do you know about scotch? All of a sudden, every 18-year-old with 100 bucks in his pocket knows about Johnny Walker Blue. Every single guy knows this wine. Oh, I see these kids. This Ramash makes me, drives me crazy. I see these young kids sometimes. They don't even have a job. A job they don't have, but their parents give them money. Miskinim, I don't know why these parents are such fools. They give these 25, 30-year-old kids that don't work, they give them money. What happens? They give them money. I see these kids. Doesn't have a job maybe five years. He's almost 30 years old. Oh, we were out one time. I don't know where we were. I think we were in Israel somewhere. Everybody orders something to drink. Water, Sprite. You know, it's hot. This 29-year-old orders wine. He orders wine. And he... You know, he takes the glass and he goes, shakes it. Like he's some connoisseur from the uh, food channel. He's like shaking it. like, And then he does these weird things with his mouth. He starts shaking it in his mouth. I just like to want to take the wine and spill it. In his mouth. Come on, wake up, buddy. Wake up. What is this nonsense? What is this game? Who are you showing off for? Who are you showing off for? Who are you showing off for? So that's the thing. What happens? Why? It's all show off. It's all nonsense. Now, when it comes to money... If you're paying, everyone's a connoisseur. Everyone knows the drinks. They know this. They know this label and that label. It's all nonsense. 99% of people, and probably even 100, but let's just give them cuffs. 99.9% of people cannot tell the difference between an $8 bottle of wine and an $800 bottle of wine. That's just reality. This whole shaking wine, letting the wine breathe, shaking it in your mouth, it's all nonsense. All of it tastes like cigarettes. It has tobacco in it. You like the taste, you don't like the taste, but it all tastes the same. It's red, it's white, it's the same thing. No one can tell the difference. Even had uh, experiments where they actually had professionals. They tell them, hey, taste this, taste that. Most people failed. They couldn't tell the difference. But what happens when you're spending it, when you're buying the bottle? Come on, no, you're only going to spend $100 on a bottle. Be a mensch. $500 minimum. It's for us, your friends. Your friends, be a tzaddik. So everyone wants to be a tzaddik with your money. You tell the guy, listen, we need to raise money. We need to raise $100,000 for Q, sponsor CDs, this. Oh yeah, my friend. My friend has a lot of money. What about you? You. You. Now I didn't ask you if your friend's here. No, he's not here. Forget about your friend. Call your friend after the shiur. What about you? You. You made 5000 last month. Where's your masin? You made 10000 last month, where's your mom's sale? Oh, you gave it away already? Do you have anything left? you have $5 left? No, I'll bring my friend. I don't want your friend. Hashem didn't bring your friend here. Your friend doesn't have the schut. What about you? What about being generous with your money? What about being generous with your stuff? 
But everybody wants to be generous with somebody else's stuff. Everybody wants to be generous with somebody else's stuff. Or, better yet, everyone is very, very quick to say they're going to be generous in the future. Oh, once I win the lotto, if I win the lotto, I'm going to give at least $100 million to, to, to this. Once I do this, I'm going to build a Beknesset. Once I win the lotto, I'm going to build this. I'm going to buy this. Everybody's generous with money they don't have. What about today? You have five bucks in your pocket. You have ten dollars. You have five hundred. You have fifty thousand. What do you have? If you have fifty thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars sitting in your bank, doing absolutely nothing, collecting one percent interest because you're trying to save for some vacation or some car, and there's people on your block that don't have food for Shabbat, you're a rasha meusha. You have people don't have food to eat, and you have you're worried about your IRA account. You're a rasha. Not that you're cheap. I'm telling you, you're a rasha. This is why the tzaddikim they didn't want to be rich. One of the tzaddikim, his wife bought a lotto ticket. As soon as he found out, he immediately ran there and he says. The entire lotto ticket winnings are yours. Whatever you win is yours. Don't give me anything. Somebody asked for the love. Why not? Why don't you want to be rich? You know how much cube you can do. You know how much Torah you can spread. Because you really think I want all that responsibility to make sure that I know who has and who doesn't have? Being rich is a big responsibility. That means that if you're rich, you have to spend part of your energy finding out who doesn't have. You can't just say, oh, if they come to me, I'll give them. If they don't come to me, I guess it's not from Shemaim. No, my friend. Hashem gave you money, you have to find out. You have to find out who within your circle doesn't have. Big responsibility to be rich. But now being rich with somebody else's money, that's a different lack of, that's a big problem. And one of the reasons for it is lack of respect. People don't have respect for each other. Makes people very quick to spend other people's money. This also happens in businesses. I remember when people would want to buy something for themselves, whether it be pens or it be, I don't know, whatever, office supplies. If they bought it on themselves, usually they buy something very basic from Staples for a dollar. But if I ask, if I go to the office, I tell them, listen, anybody needs, I'm making an order from whatever store. Anybody needs anything? Everybody all of a sudden has the wish list. Eight dollar pen, not a dollar pen. The fancy stapler for twenty-seven dollars. All these things that are completely unnecessary. Why? Because it's my money. It's very easy to spend my money. Very easy. So this is one of the things that Yetzirah convinces a person to do. Yoah Chaim elaborates on this even further. He says that this whole issue of money, of having an easier time spending other people's money, having an easier time disrespecting other people, but thinking at the same time you're making a mitzvah, this is the Yetzirah at his best. The Yetzirah is there, he makes you think that you're doing a mitzvah. Why? You have... Money, you have $50 to give. 
somebody homeless came, somebody needs, somebody needs the cat king, you have $50. But your friend, that you know for sure is 50000 You tell the guy, no, no, you give, 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 give. What about you? No, no, it's easy to be generous with his money. Because the etzah makes you think you're doing a mitzvah. But in reality, you're missing. You're missing the point. What is this like? Yitzhah comes to a person with a very, very small sin. But it's a sin that looks like it's a safek of whether it's a sin or not. It's like maybe a sin. But it's not a big deal sin. Or it's like not really a sin, but it's like a kula. It's like a, a little lower level. You've been eating, let's say, for example, somebody is already in Judaism for a long time. He's serious. He already got to a point where he's eating Chalav Yisrael. He's already eating Chalav Yisrael. All of a sudden, he's at a store and he sees a, he sees a Twix bar or a Snickers bar. It's not Chalav Yisrael. Yitzhak says, then, come on, it's just chocolate. What's the big deal? It's kosher. When did you become Gdolado? The fact that you've been eating Chalav Yisrael and really makpeed on it for five years already, it makes you forget about it very quickly. It's Chalav Yisrael, big deal, Chalav Yisrael, today, Chalav Yisrael, tomorrow, you'll do it all week. Today, you have the Twix bar, you're hungry. Starts off with a little tiny thing. Next thing you know, he doesn't go with Chalav Yisrael. He says, listen, it's chocolate. Is it kosher? Listen, it's chocolate. What could it possibly be in chocolate? It's just chocolate. What are they going to put chocolate? Pig in chocolate? When's the last time you heard there's a little pig foot in a Twix bar? Nothing. Wait, what do you care about? It's just chocolate. What's so big deal? Well, you're looking for a K? Listen, on the vitamins list, says vitamin K. That's kosher. Yet size convincing you, yesterday was halavi said to a regular. Now it's just, doesn't really need the kosher symbol because it's just chocolate. So now he occupied a little bit more real estate. The next thing you know, now, the original sin of Chalav Yisrael, that wasn't really a sin, it's not even a sin in your eyes anymore. Little by little, now you're saying, you know what? I'm out. I'm having a business meeting. It's not that easy to find a kosher restaurant. I'm going to have, I'm not going to just sit there with my clients and not eat. It looks disrespectful. They're from Greece. They don't have to eat kosher. They're from... Uh, different places around the world. They don't have to eat kosher. Why am I going to sit there? It's disrespectful for me to sit there and not eat. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat salad. I'm going to eat salad. Yeah, but salad non-kosher place is worse than eating pig. You forgot about this though. Why? It's just salad. It's chasa. It's a uh, cabbage. Lettuce. Tomatoes. A little bit of sauce. What's the big deal? You're not thinking about the fact that there, the goyim are not obligated to wash their vegetables like the Jews. So, you're much more likely to eat a bug in your non-kosher salad. Which, eating one bug is like eating pig five, six times. One bug, pig, six times. But you're not thinking about this. Why? Because... It's just salad. It's not nice. The Yetzirah is convincing you that, listen, Tchilul Hashem if you don't eat next to these goyim. Tchilul Hashem. Everything all of a sudden is Tchilul Hashem today. 
you're not like the Goyim. Eat, eat. Mabruk. Enjoy. The next thing you know, the chocolate bar. You're eating it every week. It's not kosher, but it's not a sin anymore. Why? Because you've upgraded already to the salad. After the salad, it's pasta or some other parv, if you will, type of food, but that's not kosher. And little by little, eventually you graduate and start eating McDonald's non-kosher and pork and shrimp and everything else. How do you get from being frum to eating pig? How? The way you do it is very, very simple. The Yetzirah originally comes to you and he says, listen, you have a very big, beautiful house. I don't have anything. I'm a poor, miserable man. All I want is a place in your house to put my hat. I just want to put my hat. Not my whole, every, just my hat. You feel bad for the guy. Like, you know what? Okay, no. Here you go. This place, I'm going to put a nail, hang your hat in there. It's us. says, no, no, but listen, I don't want uh, anything for free. I'll pay you for it. Here's a hundred bucks. Make you feel good. Like, oh, I got a hundred bucks to put a nail on my... Psh, put two nails. Next day, three o'clock in the morning. Yes. Yetzirah is there. He says, listen, I want to take my hat back. I want to replace it with my new hat. You couldn't come in a normal hour? No, you know, I finished just now. Work is late. He's convincing you little by little to give him more of your time. After a couple of weeks of him showing up to ask for his hat or then replace it with a jacket or annoy you constantly, eventually Chazal explained to us that you had it and you just gave him the whole house. As it says in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, page 105, this is the way of the Satan. This is the way of the Yetzirah. First he tells you this, to do this. Then he tells you to do something else. First it's small, then it's bigger, then it's bigger, then it's bigger. And eventually he tells you, go do Abu Zarah, and that's what you do. Why? Because he starts eventually taking control of the entire house. This is the same thing with someone that slowly but surely falls off the derech. First they start with the chocolate. And little by little, they become numb to that original sin. Because it really wasn't a sin. It was a chumrah. That they couldn't really uphold. Then they made a sin, but it was a small sin. They still felt good about themselves when they were laying tefillin, when they were dressing modest, when they gave tzedakah, they still felt good about themselves. They didn't think that eating the so-so chocolate was such a big deal. So they became numb to that. Eventually they wanted to look good in front of the goyim. It's so important to look good in front of the goyim, not so good to look good in front of Hashem. Everyone worries about the goyim, no one worries about Hashem. So they want to eat salad with the goyim. And the salad, little by little became pasta. Now they're numb to the salad. Salad now is like kosher to them. And little by little they become comfortably numb to their pre-existing sins eventually getting to a point where they're okay with it. They're at one, they're at peace with it. It's the same thing that happens with people that wear wigs. No woman, at least most of them, that came from a frum house, 
is putting on a wig to make a sin. Generally, most women that start when they get married, they put on a wig, they put a modest wig. They're they're thinking they're doing a mitzvah. Now, how does it go from going from a wig that it says it's supposed to be, even if technically it's not allowed, but let's say if you go with the leniencies that it is allowed, it's supposed to be short, it's supposed to not look like hair. It's supposed to look like, obviously this is not a real wig. Obviously this is not real hair. But how does it go from that to looking like a long hair that reaches your ankles? That looks like you have a horse's tail on your head. How does it go from that? It doesn't go overnight. First it goes, the wig is, uh, goes from $500 to a couple of thousand dollars. looks a little extra real. Then it becomes real. Then it becomes a little inch longer and an inch longer and an inch longer and an inch longer and eventually so many inches add up you have three feet on your back. And slowly but surely you become comfortably numb to these pre-existing sins thinking, no, no, I can always go back. The same thing goes with anything else in life. And that's one of the things that all Chaim is telling us once a man allows any evil to penetrate his defenses, he is no longer able to see the truth or accept rebuke. He becomes spiritually deaf and blind. Like a sentry, the evil inclination stands guard at the entrance of his heart, preventing any talk of change or growth. This is similar to a king who appoints thieves as his, as his palace's guards. They would certainly never allow people who want to complain about them to enter the palace. In so many words, the Oma Chaim is telling us, once you let the Yetzirah in, willingly, say, listen, this chocolate, what's the big deal? This wig, what's the big deal? This uh, light on Shabbat, what's the big deal? They meant don't like fire, they didn't mean iPhones. Once you let the Yetzirah in a little bit, he says, automatically, you become spiritually deaf. When anyone is telling you, hey, by the way, no, I don't think you're allowed to press the iPhone snooze button on Shabbat. I don't think you're, I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure if it's in Yalkut yourself, but you should check. All of a sudden, like, no, you check. I know, I know, I know my stuff. I went to Yeshiva for 20 years. I know. You don't want to hear anything. You don't want to hear anything. No one can tell you what to do. Why? Because you've already let the Yetzirah in, and the Yetzirah, as soon as he come in, he turned around, and he became the guard. He doesn't let anyone else in. No one else is allowed to come in and complain about him. He now runs the show. You gave him a little space in your house. Eventually he's going to take over the entire house. The Ramban asks a question. How is it that the brothers of Yosef at Tzaddik, they're all Tzaddikim, they're all Nevonim, they're all prophets, extraordinary people. They sold their brother, they thought that they were doing it for a right reason. But finally, when they discovered that Yosef at Tzaddik is the viceroy of Egypt, he's second in command, he's running the show over there, Finally, the token fell in and they realized we have sinned. 20 years have passed. You didn't think about it once. Maybe you 
messed up a little bit? It took you 20 years to realize maybe you sinned? What happened for 20 years? You didn't do any Ibudadut. You didn't think about it once. Rabenu Freifeld explains that in the heat of the sin, a man is so captivated by the force of evil that he really hears and sees no legitimate counter-argument. Once someone is in the heat of sin, once someone is at the store about to buy that chocolate that doesn't have a kosher symbol on it, just has a K, but it's really a vitamin K. He has a salad and it looks kosher, but it, you know it's not. Starbucks, hey, listen, they're, they're using kosher milk, but you're still not allowed to have it. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, people that call themselves rabbis permit going to Starbucks. There's no kosher sign in Starbucks. There's no permission to go to Starbucks. There's no ORB at Starbucks or you or anything at Starbucks. Their packaged goods have a, a kosher sign on it, but their store doesn't have a U on it. Why? Because they sell things that are not kosher. They sell meat, they sell all types of things that you're not allowed to eat. Plus, it's cooked by non-Jews. Not allowed to have it. Unless there's a mashkiach, not allowed to have it. But you see some modernized rabbis themselves go to the Starbucks or sometimes mention in their lectures yeah you know this morning on the way to shul I stopped by a Starbucks and I was thinking I'm like wait wait hold on a second let's just stop forget about the shul you're about to give me wait did you just say you went to Starbucks buddy you just say you went to you know it's not kosher right like there's no like Starbucks that's kosher unless there's the only one in the world that you have a franchise of there's no Starbucks that's kosher what'd you buy no, no. You know, the coffee. It's only coffee. It's only coffee. Well, if it's only coffee, how come it doesn't have a U on it? If it's only coffee. What, they ran out of money? They spent the $67 billion that they have in the bank. On everything else, they don't have enough money to pay for the U or the K. It's not kosher. It's not kosher. We make leniencies. We make a lot of leniencies. Leniencies, leniencies. Eventually, we start breaking the law. Why? Because... Ayatzah takes over. But in the heat of it, in the heat of the sin, even the rabbi, even the tzaddik, even sometimes someone at the Talmud Chacham, is not going to see it. His Yetzirah is already inside, he already let him in, he already had a coffee at a place that was questionable yesterday, to today, at least if I'm going to have coffee in a place that's questionable, let me have the Starbucks. Let me have good quality coffee. Yesterday I went to a place, I'm not even sure, I forgot to look at whether it's kosher or not. Forgot, yesterday I forgot. Today I didn't forget, but you know what? It's just coffee. What's the big deal? What's the big deal that many coffee companies use beetles as part of their ingredients? What's the big deal? The big deal is that beetles are not kosher. That's the big deal. So that's the thing when we let the Yetzirah in. We become spiritually deaf, numb, blind. And even if you tell the guy something, Brother Freifeld is saying, he won't even see what you're saying. He doesn't even see it as a possibility of a counter-argument. Because the nail is already in, it's already paying rent on the wall with the hat on it. 
He's thinking, wow, I'm going to get this guy to kick, I'm going to kick him out. What kind of rasha do you think I am? What, I'm going to tell the uh, guy from Starbucks, that, hey, hey, I forgot, it's not kosher. I have to give it back to you, please. Well, look bad, it's Chilul Hashem. Everything is Chilul Hashem. It's Chilul Hashem, I'm going to give it back. They say, what, the Jews are not drinking our coffee now? We live in this wonderful country with all of these merits. We can't even drink their coffee. They start making up all these arguments. And then he continues and he says, Only when they were overcome by therapeutic guilt and spiritually began to disengage themselves from the hold of the evil inclination that the brothers, the twelve tribes, realized that Joseph had begged for mercy all during the time of their sale. Only after they realized they got a reality check. The world we saw is not the world we live in. We thought he was a Rasha king. He's actually the brother that we sold and thought that he died. The truth we thought was the truth is no longer the truth. It's actually a lie. Someone that was born Christian one day woke up and realized the New Testament is a fairy tale. Complete a falsehood. They got a reality check. 20 years, someone is trying to convince me, by the way, why don't you read the Old Testament, a.k.a. Torah? No, no, no. I trust my uh, reverend, my priest, my whoever. I'm only learning about J.C. Penny now. He didn't want to hear anything about King David unless the priest approved it. He didn't care about Avraham Avinu because it's, it's, not, it's not relevant anymore. Moses, yeah, Moses, yeah, Moses is a nice guy, but... I have still have to catch up on Jesus. He didn't want to hear anything. He didn't want to hear anything. But then one day reality set in. And he saw a contradiction that gave him a complete different world. And he realized this book is fake. This New Testament is fake. Everything changes. All of a sudden... All the doors open, and all he wants is to consume as much Torah as possible. The secular mindset thought that we all came from monkeys. Eventually realizes the monkey's still here. If we came from monkeys, why is the monkey still here? How come he didn't evolve? How come the monkey's still here? We scan. What happened? They forgot him. Or carbon dating, all these dating systems that date the world 50 zillion years and 50 billion years. And if all of these dating systems are right, how come every scientist have a different year? How come one guy says it's 50 million years and the other guy says it's 67 million years and they make it like it's not a big deal? What do you mean it's 17 million years? Another guy says it's 2 billion years. Another guy says 250 million years. They throw millions and billions like it's a uh, chump change. You're only 60 years old, and you're old, you feel like your life is very long. But you just threw 15 million years like it's nothing. So eventually somebody's at, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. And all of a sudden, he wants to understand what the purpose of life is. All of a sudden he wants to know the meaning of everything. Is there a creator? What's his name? And if there is one, and now I know his name... I need to know what he said. 
And all of a sudden, all of the gates open and you want to consume as much Torah as possible. Now, after we start understanding that the fact that we are not respecting others like respect our own, things start to change. But how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where, you know what, at home, we don't let our kids run around like crazy because we don't want them to break the house. But for whatever reason or another, people feel free to bring their kids to a synagogue or to a mall, or to a different public area, and let them break everything. Oh, no, it's just kids, it's just kids. It's just kids, why, you know, it's not just kids. What do you mean, manage your kids. If you don't want them to break stuff in your house, don't let them break stuff in someone else. But that's all a matter of respect. But how do you get to that point? The next part that the BOC is telling us, is Apply yourself to study Torah. In essence, telling you already right off the bat, the only way to fix yourself in general, your, your ethical flaws, your character trait flaws, which eventually will lead you to respect your friends, family, and everyone around you, is with Torah. Because it's the only thing that's any truth, at all times. Meaning, some things in the world, in a secular world, can be true in some, you know, at, so, at some point, and sometimes they're, they're false. Example would be, if let's say for example, you have your kids and they come to your friend's house or you go to a synagogue and you know a little five-year-old kid breaks something in your mindset it'll make sense not Torah sense it'll make sense that you should pay for it the little five-year-old broke something you should pay for it now on the other hand if you brought your dog a lot of people have dogs or different pets, and a dog jumped on the table and broke something. What's the immediate reaction? Listen, I'm sorry, it's my dog. People don't generally get the feeling like they have to pay for it because a dog did it. Okay, it's my dog, but it's a dog. So, the secular mindset says that everything I just said is right. The kid broke it, you should pay. The dog broke it, you don't have to pay. In the Torah, it's the exact opposite. The five-year-old broke something, you're not obligated to pay. The parent is not obligated to pay. The kid should pay for it once he grows up and becomes a, a mature, as a something that's righteous to do. But the parent does not have to pay for it. On the other hand, if the animal broke something, you have to pay for it. Showing us that our secular mentality is so upside down, and different from the Torah. Which is the reason why Rabbi Yossi is telling you that the only way you can fix this 
is with Torah. You have to know the truth first. You have to know the truth in order for you to fulfill it. But now, he didn't just say go learn Torah, like we've heard many, many times. He's saying here, Atken mod. Apply yourself, fix yourself. Atken really means fix. What fix what? A person needs to know in the Gemara Masechet Brachot. Hashem says, I created Yetzirah. Yetzirah has multiple names. Satan, Malachamavit. Moses called them Ra, which, eat, which means evil. Many, many different names. Hashem gives a description. He's huge. He's smart. He's strong. We can't take him. We can't beat him. But he says, Barati Yetzirah, Barati Torah Tavlin. I created Yetzirah that you can't beat. Stronger, smarter, older, wiser, everything better than you. But I created a potion to beat him. A potion, it's called Torah. Now, obviously, if Yetzirah is as smart as they say he is, he obviously knows the potion against them. Meaning that Rabbi Yossi is preparing you here already. He's like, listen, that Yetzirah that you're trying to beat, he knows you're trying to beat him. So prepare yourself for war. Because throughout the whole day, you're working, you're hanging out, you're by the pool, you're watching the game, you're doing everything in the world that's completely away from Hashem, Yetzirah will help you. He'll bring the pool to your house. He'll make your car faster. He'll give you money to buy a fancier car. He'll break your car just so you go spend hours at the shop. He'll make you your team wins sometimes. Just so you can spend and waste more time and energy watching stupid sports. He'll do whatever he can just so you don't spend time do- learning Torah. Why? Because as soon as you start learning Torah, you're killing him. So now if you want to work on these midot that we talked about, prepare for war. Because as soon as you open that book, as soon as you decide, oh, my 15 minutes a day begins now. My hour a day begins now. My two hours a day begins now. My five hours a day begins now. Whatever your time is to learn Torah daily is. Because as we all know, it all has to be daily. Just like you have to eat and breathe daily. You have to learn Torah daily. Just like that, as soon as you're on the way, he's also already at work. And he's going to send you every single distraction you can possibly imagine. There was one time a story, a real story. Older man in his late 60s, him and his wife had a deli in Israel. One day he went to a few shuim, started getting stronger and said, you know what, I'm going to take on myself to start learning Torah seriously instead of just once in a while. So one day he didn't really want to get his wife involved. So instead of opening the deli at 5 o'clock in the morning, he went to the synagogue, learned a little bit, then prayed and continued learning. Didn't show up to the deli until 10 o'clock. Now his wife worked with him. She went at 5.30. She saw he's not there. He said, oh, maybe he's late, maybe he's busy with something. So she already started the day. Thinking he'll be there by 6, 6.30, 7. Guy shows up at 10 o'clock. Yay! 
לא מתבייש, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself coming to work at 10 o'clock. Don't say anything. Why? Because we said already, argument is two ways. If you don't answer, if you don't acknowledge, you don't continue the fire, it ends. The next day, same thing. Every day is an argument. She's like, what's going on with this guy? You know what? Today, by the third day, I'm going to follow him. She follows him. He leaves the house at 5 o'clock. She wakes up two minutes later. She starts following him. Where is this guy going at 5 o'clock in the morning? And she sees. He goes to the Beknesset. Learns praise a little bit. And he learns, oh, maybe he's probably going to leave here at 6. She waits, 5, 6, 6.30, 7, he's already here 2 hours, and he's still opening the books, reading, no sign of him leaving. And she realizes this is the place that he spends 5 hours a day in. She barges in at 8 o'clock, what are you doing, we need to make a living, we need to do this, we need to do that. You hear what all of a sudden, after almost 7 years, you decide to become an avrech. All of a sudden you're a tzaddik because you went to Shil Torah. What are you doing? We need to run our business. We need to make money. He says to her, my dear. I'm already in my late 60s. I don't know how long I'm going to live. Now what would you do if I died tomorrow? What would you do with the devil? She didn't really expect that kind of a response. She expected him to argue, yell back, say no, yeah, something. She didn't really expect him to talk, be so morbid, start talking about death. She said, oh, he died, I'd go back to business and you know, I'd run the store. What could I do? Said, okay, so this is what you do. From now on, act like I'm dead. From 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., act like I'm dead. At 10 a.m., you get to see a miracle. Resurrection of the dead. I'm back to work. This is what the BOC is telling you. In order to prepare yourself to even have a chance, to even have a chance to beat the Yetzirah, you have to fulfill the verse, Adam Yamut Ba'oi, Ki Yamut Ba'oi. A man would die in the, in his, uh, what's oil in Hebrew? In uh, English, um, tent. Tent is referring to a place you learn Torah. What do you mean, die in his uh, in his tent? Meaning, when you're going to learn Torah, the world around you should act as if you died. Your phone buzzing every two seconds. If it buzzes even half as much as what mine buzzes, you have to throw it in the garbage. Not just hide it, throw it in the garbage. Why? Because there's no way you can study Torah with serious. Kavanah with serious like focus every two seconds you have this buzz bzz, 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 every two seconds this one's calling that one's calling no no it's just on vibrate yeah but you see the screen Baruch Hashem today's screens are getting bigger and bigger the phones of today look like the tablets of yesterday I just saw a guy with a phone the other day and a phone this big I'm like it's like a television how do you put this in your pocket you need a bag just for the phone but if, you have, if your phone's next to you and it buzzes even half as much as mine, you're not going to make it. It's going to be very, very tough. On the other hand, you have kids, you have a wife, you have everything. You have to prepare the house to know this next 15 minutes, next hour, next 15 hours, whatever it is, act like I'm dead. 
Don't answer. Like just, everyone has to chip in. Everyone has to chip in because if, let's say for example, you're trying to study, every two seconds your wife knocks on your door, honey, do you uh, want to go this weekend to Charlie and Steve or do you want to stay home? No, I don't know. Maybe we'll just stay home. Okay. Ten minutes later, honey, what did you want me to make for Shabbat? Make whatever you want. Schnitzel's good? Okay. Fifteen minutes later, honey, what did you want? Did you want me to get the red wine or the uh, white wine for the Shabbat? Every fifteen minutes she comes to your office to, to, to ask you questions. How are you going to study? How are you going to study? Every two seconds you have to answer questions. Every two seconds you have to look somewhere. Every two seconds you have to change something. How are you going to succeed? Now, this is not only about success. It's also if you look at what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, it's very, very scary. He says someone that studies Torah, but then stops studying in the middle of studying without a plan, to go deal with nonsense, to go deal with the world at large in the middle of studying, they take coal, they call ratim, ratamim, that never stops burning and feed him this in Gehenom. Now, when I first read this in the Gemara, yo, relax. You're studying Torah, Baruch Hashem, in this generation, someone studies five minutes Torah, should already get all Araba. You're telling the guy he studies and he stops studying to go, I don't know, go watch a commercial, go change a diaper, go talk to his wife about what they cook for Shabbat. That's, that's, you know, punish him for that? He answers a text. How could it be? It's a little extreme, ladies. Come on. Let me Shimon, relax a little bit. How do we answer this tough question? On one end, it's telling us Adam kiyamut ba'oil. A person has to act as if he's dying. In Gemara Masechet Brachot, page sixty-three, Resh Lakish says, if a person wants to become a talmid chacham, he has to be mamash moser nefesh. He has to be willing to kill himself for it. You want to attain Torah like a talmid chacham? You have to be willing to mamash kill yourself for it. Another end, okay, fine, it sounds great. I'm willing to study, exert my efforts, sleep less, do less secular stuff, work, do everything less just to study Torah, fine. But hey, once in a while, I'm a human being, once in a while, I have a text message. Once in a while, I have a phone call, I have to answer this phone call. Am I going to get punished for this phone call? Am I going to get punished for answering my wife, telling her that I don't feel like picking up the kids from camp? It's a punishment. It's that bad. There's not enough reshaim in the world. You have to focus on me. Now the answer to this is based on the fact that we have no idea what it actually means to study Torah. In the book of Jeremiah, Hashem says to Jeremiah, Im lo briti yomam v'layla, chukot shamayim lo samti. If not for my covenant, day and night, 
the laws of the world, the laws of creation will cease to exist. And Gemara Masechet Shabbat says, Briti here is referring to Torah learning. Meaning, Hashem is telling Jeremiah the prophet, if someone is not learning Torah in the world, at all times, 24 hours a day, there has to be somebody learning Torah, the world's laws will cease to exist. Meaning, now you have gravity, no longer have gravity. Now you have oxygen, no more oxygen. Now all of the atoms are spinning to make everything look like it's solid, no more spinning. And for anyone that understands science, when atoms stop spinning, the subject evaporates, it dis- no, disappears. Doesn't explode, doesn't break, just disappears. We talked about it in a different lecture. But nonetheless, Hashem is telling us here that if it's not for the Torah, someone in the world is learning, the world will cease to exist. Meaning, that you little guy that's studying a little chumash at 11.30 at night, you're studying a little Gemara, Masechet Bachot, Masechet Ta'anit, Masechet Shabbat, whatever Masechet you're up to, at 1 a.m., at 1 p.m., whatever that is, you barely understand what they're even saying. But you're studying, you're trying, you're breaking your head, a little bit of sweat, almost as much as I'm sweating today because no AC. You're breaking a sweat. You, my friend, are responsible for a certain part of the world at that moment. Why? Out of, let's say, right now we have about 7.37 billion people in the world. Let's just call it 7.4 billion people in the world. Out of the 7.4 billion people, approximately 20 million are Jews. Give or take, some say 13 million, some say more, some say less. Let's just say 20 million. 20 million or 13 million is the same on the grand scheme of things, out of 7.5 billion people, it's a rounding error. Out of the 20 million people, 2 million keep Shabbat. Which in essence means that out of the 20 million people, the 2 million that keep Shabbat, approximately 2 million, maybe 3 million, they're the ones that are more likely learning Torah. The ones that are not keeping Shabbat, most likely are not learning Torah on a regular basis. Maybe once in a while they watch Shiur, but on a regular basis, they're most likely not learning Torah. So now you've already lowered the number. Out of, let's say, the three million that are learning Torah on a regular basis, not all of them are learning at the same time. Some are learning at night, some are learning at day, some are learning for an hour, some are learning for 15 hours, some are learning for 15 minutes. So now you've narrowed it down even more. To that one hour. And now, there's different time zones. One guy is learning at one in the afternoon, but the other guy that learns also learns at one in the afternoon. But here, in, the, in one in the afternoon, is 24, is 17 hours later, eight hours later, seven hours later. Meaning they're never learning at the same time. So at any one particular moment, I don't know, maybe you have 50,000, let's say, give or take 15,000 even. They're actually learning Torah in the world. 15,000 or 50,000. Even if you have 100,000 learning Torah. 
100,000 people learning Torah. And if you had 2 million people studying Torah, that means that each person is responsible for approximately 3,700 people in the world. Meaning 3,700 people in the world are alive because of him learning Torah. That's if all 2 million are learning. And in reality, it's not all 2 million. If you have a half a million learning at the same time, times it by 4. There are approximately 14,000. Each person is responsible for 14,000 people. Most likely it's 50,000. Which means that each person is responsible for 140,000 people being alive that 15 minutes that he's learning. That one hour that he's learning. Meaning that if he didn't learn, Hashem would end the lives of 150,000 people. Do you understand what it means to learn Torah? People celebrate because they have 5,000 friends on Facebook that they don't even know. I'm telling you, you learn Torah for five minutes, you're responsible for 150,000 people being alive, Bichlal. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 32, Hashem talks about how upset he is at Am Yisrael. This time they angered him. Many times we've let him down, unfortunately. But here he specifically says that he kicked us out of the country because we angered him. Not only did we do evil, but we angered him. It says in the verse, because of all the evil that the children of Israel and the children of Judah, that they committed to anger me. They and their kings and their officers, their priests and their prophets, and the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So what do they do? So bad. They're angry about it. Listen, Hashem, we let him down many times, but he specifically says we angered him. To me, they turned their back and not their face. And though I, I taught them, arise early in teachings, they do not listen or to accept rebuke. He says, listen, I taught them many things. They won't even listen to what I'm saying. They won't even accept the Musar, the prophets that I'm sending them to tell them the truth. They won't even listen to them. People that are talking to me directly, they won't even listen to them. But he says something different here from all of the verses. He says, they turn their back and not their face. Now, if I turn my back to you, that obviously means you don't see my face. Why is there a repetition of turning back and the face? It's two of the same thing. It means the same thing. Why is there a repetition? Because I'll explain that this is, Hashem is trying to tell us that this is a double sin. A double sin, which we learn in chapter 2 of Jeremiah. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the source of living waters, to dig for themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold the water. So Shem is telling us here, you made two sins. First you left me, you're making sins. First you said, listen, I can't keep Shabbat. Because I got to work. I got to work on Shabbat. But what do they replace me with? They replaced me with falsehood. Ah, Satan showed up, so the Facebook Live died because my phone died. Let's see, let's try it again. Sorry, Facebook Live people, the uh, battery is dying. We only have a short period of time left. But nonetheless... Anything you miss, you'll be able to see on YouTube or Torah anytime or BezatHashem.org But here Hashem is telling Jeremiah they made two sins. First, they left me. That's already a sin. Said, I can't keep Shabbat. Then, I asked them why. Why can't you keep Shabbat? I said, oh, I have to work. But in reality... Six months later, they used that money that they made on Shabbat to go on vacation to Cancun. To go buy a fancier car. To go buy a bigger house. If you have all this extra money to go on vacation, what do you need to work on Shabbat for? How come you have extra money to give to vacation, but you don't have extra money to give tzedakah? How come you can't keep Shabbat, you have to work on Shabbat all year, but on your vacation it's okay? You don't work. You can take two weeks off for vacation, but you can't take off one day a week for Hashem. So it's not only the sin, there's the chutzpah of the sin. So that makes it a double sin. And Hashem says, that made me angry. It's not just the sin they made. It's not that they just went and worshipped idols they worshipped nothing they replaced me the source of water with a little hole that can't even contain the water that I gave them to fill in it what happens to people they make this double sin. If you go to Psalm 115, verse 17, King David says, Lo ametim duma. Translation, neither the dead can praise God, nor anyone who descends to Duma. What's Duma? Duma is the angel responsible for the excuse department in Gehenom. All of those people that had special excuses of why they're not keeping Shabbat, because they needed to work, but yet it wasn't because of work. All of the women that said, I can't be modest because people make fun of me, but that really wasn't true, it's because they want to get attention. 
all of the people that made all types of excuses for Hashem says don't worry you have a special department reserved for you Duma will take care of you you become BFFs real quick and Jeremiah gave us a pretty serious chidush we got today Sonny and I we saw something very scary Continuing in chapter 2 here, in verse 20, Hashem is telling us that we've let the Yetzirah control us to the point where we are acting like a harlot. We're acting like a prostitute chasing money. We're just... Oh, you have a thing? So you could... Yeah, take the thing off and then... Uh, Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Okay. There you go. It's like a low. Hey, Facebook, Baruch Hashem, you have Seat of Ishmael. You uh, get to the rescue. Okay, let me do that. Got it? Okay, we got an extra battery, Baruch Hashem. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's good. It looks professional. Looks like I'm doing, I know what I'm doing here. So. Hashem says here in verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, For I have always broken your yoke and torn off your straps, and you have said, I will not transgress. Yet upon every lofty hill and under every leafy tree you wander like a harlot. Hashem says, you're the one that says you're going to be religious, you're going to do tshuva, you're going to start keeping... What keeping? You started keeping Shabbat, but you're still a thief at work. You started keeping kosher, but you still yell at your wife nonstop. You started learning Torah, but you don't listen to a word the sages say. You go to Bet Knesset, but you're thinking about the baseball game instead of thinking about the fact that you're in front of Hashem. Everywhere your Yetzirah is taking you, you're going. Just like a prostitute. To such an extent that he talks about the end of times in verse 27. Saying that Yetzirah got us to a point where we're worshipping idols. He says they say to the wood, you are my father. And to the stone, you have borne us. And if any of you remember in my other shurim, in Parashat Vayetchanan, the book of De- Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Hashem gives us a prophecy of what's going to happen at the end of times, after we've made many sins. We're going to get to a point where Hashem's going to throw us out, and we're going to continue sinning, and what's going to happen? We're going to follow the God of wood and the God of stone. If you remember in chapter 4, verse 27 28, says, Hashem will scatter you amongst the people, and you will be left few in number amongst the nations where Hashem will lead you. There you will serve gods, the handiwork of man, of wood and stone, which do not see and do not hear and do not eat and do not smell. He's saying these two idols 
fault, the handiwork of man, of wood and stone, is what you're going to follow. Wood representing Christianity, stone representing Islam. You're going to follow this idol worship, you're going to follow falsehood, firah, all types of heresy. Before you come back to Hashem, that's what you're going to do. Here, many, many centuries later, he's telling Jeremiah the very same thing. He's saying that these, they already went to that. They're saying to the wood, meaning they're saying to Christianity, yeah, you're my father. And to the stone, saying, you're born to us. And we all came from the same place. And then he continues and he says, to me, they turned their backs and not their faces. Again, he's saying the chutzpah, the double sin. But in their time of distress, they will say, arise and save us. He said, eventually when they get into serious, serious trouble, they're going to say, hey, Hashem, this God of wood and stone is not helping us. This falsehood is not helping us. You need to help us. Now all of this sounds wonderful. Sounds far away. Until today. I saw a clip that was published maybe a a year ago. Anyone that's been following some of the current events, what's happening with terrorism and things and such, you see that ISIS, is doing everything they possibly can to not only kill as many people as possible, but to scare everyone that's still alive. So one of their scare tactics is that they brought some Arabs that speak Hebrew to make videos and send it to Israel to scare them saying we're coming to you we're coming to scare you we're coming to kill you we're coming to fight the war don't think that just because we're in Syria we're in Iraq we're in all these places that you're okay we're coming to you now this has happened several times in several videos you can find online Quite a few of ISIS killing people and so on is even a handful or so where they're actually speaking Hebrew which is more intimidating for anyone that speaks Hebrew. Why? Because it's showing that these people lived in Israel at some point meaning that they're they were bred in Israel. But the rest of these terrorists that live over there that uh, you know, these Arabs that hate Israel live there but they hate them. But what's the scary part? The scary part is that in the clip we're about to publish with Be'ezrat Hashem in the next few days you're going to see this terrorist, Nimach Shimo from ISIS, talking in Hebrew. And he says, we're coming to you. It's going to be a big war. Not just a war, it's going to be a big war. The war of stone and wood. Just like the prophet said, in accordance to what Hashem put in his mouth, the end of times... There's going to be a war of stone and wood. It's not so far away from home. In the Gemara, Maseret Baba Metziah, 
sages ask, why did such big punishment come to Am Yisrael that's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 32? Shem threw him out, got angry. Why? For what? What did they do that was so bad? Okay, you know, many times we made other sins. But here, he's not just talking about idol worship. Here he's saying, they angered him. What did they do? He says, the punishment came Meaning, because they didn't make a blessing before they started learning Torah. They a blessing. That's it. That's our problem. Shabbat is a problem. Not eating kosher. Wasting seed. This is what you're telling me. We didn't make a blessing. We learned Torah. We didn't make a blessing. That's why you destroyed everything. In another Gemara Masechet Nedarim, page 81a, says some Tamidim Chachamim, some sages, some, have sons that don't end up being Tamidim Chachamim. Not everyone has children, even if he's a Tamid Chacham. They don't end up being Tamidim Chachamim, just like it says in the Mishmishnah. Apply yourself to Torah study, for it's not yours by inheritance. Just because you're a Tamid Chacham, does not mean that your children will also be Tamidim Chachamim. So the Gemara asks, why? And it gives the very same answer. Because they didn't make a blessing before they sat to learn Torah. So Chazal is asking, why? it's that much of a big deal to make a blessing? To learn Torah? That, to the point where you can destroy... Everything for it? No. It's not the blessing that's important. It's what's behind the blessing. These tzaddikim learned Torah. They were prophets. They were tzaddikim. They were chachamim. They were amazing people. They sat down. They took the kabbalah. They started learning. They started learning. They started learning. And Hashem says, that's a problem. Today we'd be lucky if I could just convince everyone in the room to start learning every day. And you're telling me that not making a blessing is a problem? What's the meaning behind this? The meaning behind this is the problem we have back then is the very same problem we have today. We have no idea what it actually means to learn Torah. Because had we known what it is to learn Torah, we wouldn't stop. If we knew what it means to learn Torah, that every time you open the book, Hashem shows up. You open a Torah, ten people learn together, Shekhinah comes. Nine people, Shekhinah comes. Chazal says all the way to the point where even if you're studying by yourself, the Shekhinah comes. Meaning you have a meeting with the King of Kings. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is coming here. And what are you doing? You're learning, and then you're answering the text, and you're looking at the bunny video. And you're, ah, look, yeah, honey, look at what happened. Look at the baby pictures. What is this like? Someone is having heart surgery. Heart surgery is no joke. 
in the middle of surgery, top surgeon in the world, stops the surgery because he has buzzing in, the, in his pocket. Takes the phone, and he starts looking, he starts laughing. Everybody looks at him, what is he laughing about? They go over to his phone. And they all watch, and he sees little cartoon videos that his grandson sent him. And he starts laughing at this. He sees Bobby's world. He starts laughing at this cartoon. Meanwhile, the patient's heart is open, bleeding everywhere, and he's laughing at the video. If the owner of the hospital, manager of the hospital, president of the hospital, even the patient's family saw this idiot doctor playing with his phone in the middle of the surgery, what would they do? They'd probably switch places with him, make sure he has the heart surgery tomorrow. This is us. When we learn Torah and we let the world around us distract us, this is us. We have a meeting with the King of Kings. But we're looking at our phone. We're looking at the television in the background. We're managing a conversation with the wife or with the friends. Thinking, ah, it's Parashat Bereshit. It's a simple Parashat this week. Ah, it's just Moses just crawling, you know, past the Sea of Reeds. Great miracles. Oh, what's the game? What's the score? Oh, yeah, yeah. And continue reading. Like it's a Harry Potter book. That's what the Gemara means here. They sat down, even them, even the sages sat down and they didn't think enough about the fact that they're about to meet Hashem Barach when they're learning Torah. So they didn't make a blessing. They were so focused, they wanted to just go down to the learning. Go, oh, oh, oh. Even if you're a sage, even if you're Tamit Chacham, Tamit Chacham is considered higher than a prophet. Higher than a prophet, even if you're Tamit Chacham, even if you're Gdoladol, even if you're a Tana, you must prepare yourself to learn Torah. Not just learn Torah, prepare yourself to learn Torah. Because when you open that book, the Shekhinah comes. You have a meeting. You have a meeting with the King of Kings. Act with some respect. Act with some care. Don't act like it's a baseball game. Don't act like it's just another thing. Ah, oh, just opening a chumash. What's the big deal? Just learning. He says, if you don't treat it with respect, not only is that enough to make Hashem upset, but it's to the point where your kids are going to see you. They see how disrespectful you are to the Torah. Okay, so you know a few verses by heart. Okay, you even know a few dapim by heart. So what? So what? To them, here's no book. Here's reading this old book from 2,000 years ago. And that's why they're not going to come in. And they're not going to say, hey, listen, that's your... You own that Gemara Abba. It's not my inheritance. I just want money. I just want money. So to end it off, Rabbi Yossi says, V'kol ma'asecha Yerushem Shamayim. Everything that you do must be for the sake of heaven. You want to get to a point of learning Torah like you're supposed to. You want to get to a point of becoming a Talmud Chacham. You have to start 
adjusting your life to make sure you're ready to learn Torah. You have to start adjusting your life to start learning Torah for the sake of learning Torah. Not just learn Torah, but learn, learn for the sake of learning Torah. As the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch says, chapter 31, all of one's motives should be directed for the sake of heaven. Everything that a person does has to be for Shem Shemayim. Not because he's getting money, not because he's expecting a reward, not because he wants Hashem to help him on something specific. He's doing it simply because he has to do it. Hashem says, do it to you do it to you Hashem says, keep Shabbat, you keep Shabbat. Not because there's Olam Abba, not because you may get Panasah, not because you want Hashem to send you anything. No, you do it purely because that's what you have to do. You start treating Torah like that. Where I have to learn just like I have to breathe. Just like I won't go a day without breathing, I'm not going to go another day without eating. And I'm not going to go another day without learning Torah. You start treating the Torah like that, you have a chance to succeed. In the book, To Remain a Jew, by Yitzchak Zilber, he gives an amazing example on page 364, says all the things that he did in his life, he went through practically a holocaust and a lot of craziness in Russia, persecution, beat him up, took his money, tortured him and his family, went to jail for just being a Jew. He says, my most important thing that I wanted to do every day, aside from obviously teaching the public Torah, was to teach my son a little Torah also. Teach my son. One day I was really, really tired. In the middle of the shiur, I was starting to fall asleep. So I fall asleep in the middle of the shiur. Get tired. It's 12 o'clock at night. Fall asleep. And my son said, Abba, why don't you take some rest? And I thought to myself, Yeah, you know what? I really should rest. I really was tired. But then I said to myself, maybe just the Yetzirah. Maybe it's Yetzirah just making me tired. So I said to myself, okay, wake me up in a half hour. That's all I need. I need a half hour just to get myself power nap. I got a half hour. I woke up. And we started studying. We had a great lesson. But the most important lesson of that day was this. Was that I finally realized and learned what it means to do everything in the Shem Shemayim. What to do everything for the sake of heaven. Two people exist, two people have the same exact job. Both made the same amount of money. Both, let's say, make $75,000 a year as an example I'm going to give you now. Two people make $75,000. Both of them work the same amount of hours. They both work 12 hours a day, let's say. They both make $75,000. One guy makes all of his money and works as hard as he does. To make sure that he has money to pay for the vacation to Cancun or to Israel or to Mexico or a different place. I think Cancun is actually in Mexico. So somewhere else to Greece. Or to buy some furniture or to buy a newer car. The other guy, he makes the same amount of money, same amount of work, same amount of effort. But he works this hard so he can afford to give his children Torah education, they go to a good yeshiva, 
where the teachers are kosher and they're not beating up kids like we hear every other day. Kosher teachers, kosher teachings, not boys and girls, separated. Real yeshiva, like it's supposed to be. And he has extra money to give some stakah for people that are in need. And he has some money to help other souls come back to Hashem. Do some kiru. Now both people make the same amount of money. Both people work just as much. They both work 12 hours a day. They both make $75,000. But when they both arrive to Shemaim, their schal is worlds apart. The one that made 75000 for the vacation and the furniture and the car and all the stuff that he had, they say that, what did you do in this world? And he says, listen, I worked, I worked, I worked, I worked, and I worked. So how much toil did you learn? No, not so much. Ah, maybe like 15 minutes a day. Okay, so you have 15 minutes a day times 100 years. That's what you have. The other guy comes. So what did you do in the world? Like, I worked, I worked, I worked, I worked, I worked. And what did you do with the money? I did this. Like, oh. Every single minute of your job is considered as if you learned Torah. Why? Because the only reason you worked is not because you wanted to get fancy hotels and fancy cars and fancy anything. Even if you got them. Even if you had a big house. Even if you had a fancy car. But the main purpose of you working hard was to make sure that you're supporting Torah. Supporting Takah, supporting Zikwe Rabim. And the other things were just a byproduct. It's considered as if every minute of your job was considered as if you learned Torah. In addition to the Torah that you learned, obviously, in reality. You can't just say, listen, I work all day and I learn Torah. There's no such thing as a righteous person that's also an ignorant. You have to learn Torah in addition to working. But nonetheless, if Every job that you did, everything you did, had a Shem in mind. I'm doing this so I can learn more Torah, publish more Torah, support more Torah. It's considered as if it's all Torah. And Rav Zilber says, that half hour nap, I didn't nap just because I wanted to sleep. Just like any other animal, I need to sleep. But I slept just so I could learn better Torah. If every one of your actions is for the purpose of getting to Torah then you can fulfill the issue we had in the past where we arrived at Torah but we didn't know what to do with it we didn't even make a blessing and that's one of the most important things that a Jew needs to understand if you start valuing the Torah what it really is it becomes easier it becomes more valuable if every time you learn Torah you start thinking you know what there's 150,000 people or more that are alive just because of this very simple shield Torah we had for the last couple of hours a couple hundred thousand people are alive because I sat here I learned Torah that seems more valuable that seems more significant that makes you feel like the superman you really are. But if you're thinking, listen, if I know Parashat Shavua, I don't know Parashat Shavua. If I know the Halakha of Shabbat, I don't know the Halakha of Shabbat. I'll just follow what everybody else is doing. Then, 
it's very easy for us to fall. And the fall, as we talked about in the beginning of this year, is very, very far. We start with a little thing that doesn't seem like a big deal. Listen, I don't know what the Pashat Shavuah is, but I'll just read along. I'll read along. I don't know what I need to do on Shabbat, but I'm going to his house. I'll just do what he does. Seems like it's not such a big deal. I'm new anyway. Next thing you know, you've become used to this small nonsense sin. Then you start actually sinning. But it's a small sin. Then it's a bigger sin. And little by little, the Yetzirah takes control and makes himself comfortable inside your neshama. And lo and behold, eventually it takes complete control and you're back to where you started before tshuva or even worse. And it's much harder to do tshuva a second time. That's why some of the most difficult people to help come back to Hashem are people that used to be religious. Because they already think they know everything. So Rabbi Yossi is telling you, be careful with all of your Torah. Because it's not something that you're just going to get by default just because you read a book, just because your father knew something, just because your uncle knew something, just because even because you used to know something. If you don't learn Torah on a daily basis, you'll lose it. Hashem says, you leave me for a day, I leave you for two. Not because Hashem is punishing you and is being, taking vengeance. But because the Torah is a moving target. If you're not growing with target, you're not growing with Torah, you're shrinking. Meaning, the Torah is moving forward. With or without you, it's moving. If you're not going to find out this Chidush tonight, someone else will. It's moving. You're either going to be on a train, or you're not going to be on a train. Which means if you leave it today, it's going to continue moving. So by the time you figure it out, oh wait, i got to go back to Torah, you missed it for a day. The Torah is already a day apart from you. Meaning now it's a two-day difference. You went here, it went there. Now you have to catch up. It's much, much more difficult to do tshuva now. You leave it for three days, five days, a week, a month, the next thing you know... You become an Amaretz and you lost everything you knew. And this is why the video that we talked about is so scary. Because while the Arab terrorists know exactly what's going on, and this is the war of wood and stone, we're still here twiddling our thumbs trying to figure out, you know what, can I really make it tonight to study for an hour? We're still trying to convince ourselves to whether we're going to study tomorrow or not. They're already on the page of where Hashem is putting them and we're still trying to figure out where we are. So Bezat Hashem, this wake-up call, wakes up our neshama, gets us to start honoring the Torah like we're supposed to and Bezat Hashem, get closer and closer to Hashem Yitvalach. Any questions? Baruch Adonai Amen Amen.